This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Parcast Crime Bites. We wanted to give our listeners some additional content to help them dive even deeper into the true crime world. Every week, in addition to your normal female criminals episode, we're exploring the most fascinating true crime themes covered across the Parcast Network. We've collected short clips from some of our most popular Parcast originals to help us explore ideas like motivation, method, and madness, and show how interconnected the true crime world really is. You can find the original episodes these clips are pulled from for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A list of episodes that we used will be posted in the episode description. Today, we're discussing cases of murder modus operandi, or MOs. What are the tactics killers use on their victims? And what do those methods say about their psyche? Modus operandi, or MO, is a Latin phrase that translates to method of operating. People often confuse the terms modus operandi and signature, but former FBI agent John Douglas believes there's a significant difference between the two. Douglas explains that a killer's MO is an act that is necessary to commit a crime, while a signature is a distinct aspect of the crime that fulfills a psychological need of the killer. A killer's signature tends to remain the same over time, while an MO may be fluid and evolve as a killer experiments with their methods to avoid getting caught. For instance, a killer's signature may involve a killer's preferred victim type, as in young, blonde, white female, while an MO might describe their typical method of disposing of a body. According to criminologist Brent E. Turvey, a killer's MO usually serves three purposes, to hide their identity, to successfully complete the crime, and to escape capture. For instance, a killer might wear a mask to cover their face, they might use a gun to kill their victim, or they might dispose of the victim's car to cover their tracks. Turvey also explains that a killer's MO is useful in criminal profiling. Many times, a detective can determine that separate murders were committed by the same individual because the MOs match. It can also give insight to the identity of an unknown suspect, for instance, methodical mutilation may indicate the killer is a doctor or has a working knowledge of anatomy. In today's episode, we'll explore the methods used by killers on their victims and unpack the psychology behind their different MOs. Our first clip comes from an episode of Parcast Original Female Criminals, examining the 1914 bombing assassination of Russian Governor Hovostov. The assassin, Marie Sukhlov, was a peasant-turned-revolutionary who was driven to murder after she learned that the governor was planning a Jewish pogrom, or massacre. After receiving permission from her terrorist faction to assassinate the governor, she and her former roommate, Nikolai, enacted their plan. The next morning was bone-chilling, despite the sun. Marie paced on the road outside her home, a bomb in her purse. Across the bridge, 
she saw Nikolai coming toward her. He held a package wrapped with a bright red ribbon. She knew that was his bomb. He walked towards Marie, then passed her. As he did, he whispered goodbye and went to take his position on the bridge. Marie knew they would likely die from the bomb blast, a small price to pay for Russia's freedom. An ornate carriage came into view. As it made its way towards Nikolai, he threw the bomb under the carriage. Marie braced herself for an explosion that never came. The bomb failed to detonate. A police officer who had been riding behind the governor's carriage charged at Nikolai and fired a single shot. The carriage began to pick up speed as the driver urged the horses into a gallop. Marie saw Nikolai fall into the snow, just as she threw her own bomb at the carriage. A sonic wave lifted her from her feet and threw her into the snow. Blood was streaming down her hands and face. She slipped in and out of consciousness as debris fell around her. Finally, she passed out. Passersby saw Marie lying bloodied in the snow and carried her to a private hospital. When she awakened there, she left immediately. She preferred to die rather than put everyone in the hospital at risk of punishment if the police found out they were treating a terrorist. After walking for some distance, Marie fainted from exhaustion and blood loss. A young Jewish man found her and, seeing the blood on her face, asked, Are you the one that threw a bomb at the governor? She admitted it. The young man carried Marie to his home, grateful for her assassination of the governor whose planned pogrom might have killed his entire family. His parents successfully hid Marie through the night, though she was delirious from blood loss and passed in and out of consciousness. In that clip from Female Criminals, we heard Marie Sukhoff kill her victim, Governor Havostov, by throwing a bomb under his carriage. A day later, Marie was caught by authorities at a train station, and after her trial, was sentenced to death by hanging. She later escaped and made her way to the United States, where she wrote her autobiography. According to the FBI, bombs are used in 70% of terrorism cases. It's unknown why exactly Marie chose to use a bomb, but FBI research indicates that bombs are discreet and effective. A bomb allows the killer to get close to their victim, which makes the assassination more likely to be successful. While Marie Sukhoff killed for a greater cause, our next killers were likely motivated by money and power. Our next clip comes from a special crossover episode of Unsolved Murders and Kingpins, covering the Valentine's Day Massacre. On Valentine's Day, 1929, seven members of Chicago's Northside Gang gathered in a garage that housed gangster Bugs Moran's bootlegging operations. Men posing as police officers entered the garage and lined the gang up against the wall, pretending to arrest them. But instead of handcuffs, these men pulled out their Thompson submachine guns. The men the cops had led into the building opened fire, spraying bullets from their Thompson submachine guns. All seven men were cut down, 
their bodies nearly sliced in half by the ceaseless barrage of bullets. After almost a minute of trigger pulling, the cops and the strangers left the building, half going out the front door and the other half going out the back. Witnesses at the time saw two men dressed as police officers escorting two men who looked like gangsters holding their hands up. The witnesses watched as they quickly drove away, simply assuming the gunfire had been the prelude to a successful police raid and the successful arrest of two mobsters. Yet as time went by, May's dog kept barking and people grew curious. Claire McAllister, one of the neighbors, finally decided to peek into the garage to see what had happened. He carefully opened the door and looked inside, only to see Frank Gusenberg dragging himself to the front door, drenched in his own blood. <gasps> Who is it? I, I just come to help you out. <laughs> police! Doctor! As the witness called the police, doctors and officers rushed to the scene. They would enter the building to see the most devastating carnage that had ever occurred within the city of Chicago. Six corpses were lying against the ground in a pool of their own blood, hundreds of bullets embedded into the wall behind them. Doctors would rush to treat Frank Gusenberg, who had been hit by 14 bullets, but he would die only three hours after the shooting. He remained tight-lipped about who had killed him, saying only that they had been cops, sticking to the Omerta Code. His death brought the total body count of the attack up to seven. The papers had been used to printing stories about bold and deadly mob murders, but this attack was far beyond the pale. It was a mass killing almost unbelievable to the press, and they decided massacre was the only word appropriate to describe what had occurred. Following the events in that clip from the Unsolved Murders and Kingpins crossover, police directed their attention toward members of Al Capone's Southside Gang. Capone had a long-standing rivalry with Bugs Moran. He wanted full power of Chicago's bootlegging operations, so he had motive to get rid of the Northside Gang. Ultimately, police could not definitively connect Capone to the crime, and the massacre remains unsolved. The use of the Thompson submachine gun, colloquially known as the Tommy gun, was common among police officers in the 1920s and 30s due to its high rate of fire and large magazine capacity. Those traits also made it popular with nefarious gangsters such as Pretty Boy Floyd, John Dillinger, and Babyface Nelson. The Valentine's Massacre inspired Congress to take action on gang violence and guns. In 1934, President Franklin Roosevelt signed the National Firearms Act, which imposed a hefty $200 fine on high-powered weapons, such as the Tommy gun. For Marie Sukloff and the orchestrators of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, the murders were somewhat of a business transaction, something that needed to be done in order to obtain another goal. But what does it look like when a killer's M.O. suggests he enjoys the kill? Coming up, we discuss the modus operandi of Jack the Ripper. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, 
the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Now back to the show. From bombs used to assassinate governors to high-powered submachine guns used to wipe out a gang, criminals employ a variety of different weapons to carry out their murders. But what methods are used by a serial killer? Between 1888 and 1891, 11 female victims were murdered in the Whitechapel area of London. At first, police didn't realize the murders were connected. But using their knowledge of the killer's M.O., they were able to determine that at least five of the women were killed by the same person, Jack the Ripper. Two murders that have been canonically linked to Jack the Ripper are the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Kate Eddowes, who were slain on the same night. This final clip from ParCast's original Unexplained Mysteries covers the modus operandi of Jack the Ripper. Jack's hatred of women, whether it was tinged with classism, childhood trauma, or adult betrayal, is undeniable. But Jack's treatment of his victims was very specific. He did not sexually assault his victims. Instead, he killed them as quickly and quietly as possible by strangling them. Then he would proceed to mutilate the body, sometimes removing sexual and reproductive organs. Modern analysis of Jack's very specific modus operandi lands him in the category of product killer. A product killer is less interested in the murder itself than in what he does with the body after the kill. This explains why the Ripper preferred to kill his victims by strangulation, saving the slashing for after they were dead. For example, the double-event murder of both Elizabeth Stride and Kate Eddowes on September 30, 1888, makes more sense when viewed through the lens of a product killer. For Jack, the pleasure came from what he did to the body after the murder rather than the act of murder itself. Because he was interrupted before he was able to mutilate Elizabeth's guts and remove her uterus, he immediately attacked another victim, Kate Eddowes. Now that we have a better understanding of the why behind the Ripper's murders, let's consider the how. For example, you'll recall from part one that the second victim of the double event, Kate Eddowes, was killed in Mitre Square. Police records and witness statements show that Mitre Square was being patrolled every five to ten minutes by constables the night of the double event. But despite this hefty police presence, Jack managed to lure Kate to the square, strangle her, slash her throat open, and mutilate her. Jack cut Kate open from groin to sternum and pulled her intestines from her body, leaving them draped over her shoulder. He cut out about two feet of intestine and laid it beside her body. And then he delicately removed one of her kidneys 
and took it with him before disappearing into the night. Jack could have performed all this with near superhuman efficiency in the ten minutes of privacy he had between police patrols. Or the police waited until Jack was finished to raise the alarm. In that clip from Unexplained Mysteries, we learned that Jack the Ripper's modus operandi indicated that he was a product killer. His satisfaction wasn't found in bloodlust. Instead, he enjoyed the mutilation after the killing. Jack the Ripper's murders also indicate a shift in M.O. that came from learning and experience. During the night of the double event, Jack killed two victims because he was interrupted in the middle of the first murder. He was denied the satisfaction of his mutilation. As a result, several of his later murders took place in the victim's home to give him more privacy and less of a chance to be discovered by a passerby. Psychology researcher Robert D. Keppel says that Jack the Ripper's modus operandi is heavily studied even over a century later because of its rarity. Today's clips demonstrated that a killer's modus operandi is crucial in determining a profile of unknown killers. As Brenty Turvey explained, killers' MOs are designed to either complete the crime, help the criminal escape, or hide the criminal's identity. We saw that the perpetrators of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre posed as policemen to hide their identity and used rapid-fire machine guns to quickly kill their victims. Like many terrorists, Marie Sukloff used a bomb to get closer to her target and efficiently wipe him out. Jack the Ripper's quick kill with extended mutilation of the body shows he was a product killer who found more enjoyment after the murder took place. In addition, Jack's fluid M.O. showed that he was learning from his previous crimes to avoid capture. Detectives also used his M.O. to link several of his crimes together. Understanding the behavior of killers and how this changes over time has helped turn their modus operandi into effective tools for investigation. The very things that help killers get away with crimes also assist in their capture. Thanks for tuning into Parcast Crime Bites. We hope you enjoyed this episode on Killer M.O.'s. We'll be back next week with a new episode on clues left by criminals. How did investigators use these crucial pieces of evidence to find their suspect? If you'd like to listen to the episodes we discussed today in full, simply search for our podcast original shows, Unsolved Murders, Kingpins, Unexplained Mysteries, or Female Criminals on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time.